Japan with Japan, I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's show, lies and empowerment. In addition, we'll be joined by Matthew Syed, who will discuss the science of high performance. So stay tuned for all this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And the world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here on the Grok's Science Show. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Pretty good. Just had my chicken soup. It's not only tastes good, it's good for you. My soul is complete. You know, your soul is gushing out of your body, much like a uh, BP oil well. <laughs> good times, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I would try and plug it. <laughs> I think you just let time heal everything. Well, the question is, does power corrupt? It corrupts absolutely. So there's a study that's being reported in psychological science carried out by uh, U.S. industrial researchers found out something very interesting that uh, people who feel empowered are supposedly at a higher perched position make fewer errors than those who are in lower status or lower positions, which is a little bit contrary to their original hypothesis, which was that people who are in higher positions would be more prone to make mistakes and not paying attention. But this new finding suggests that the higher position you are, the fewer mistakes you make. Is this just because you're more invested in the results if you're in a higher position? could be possible, but somehow these people feel empowered. There's some with a greater awareness within them. And what they did was they first conditioned this group with words like authority or dominate. And then the other group, the so-called powerless group, were conditioned with words like subordinate and obey. And then they did an executive function test. Wow, executive function test. Sounds like something in the new Microsoft Office. <laughs> I'm still using 2003. <laughs> and it turns out the people who are empowered could recognize the disparities or the mistakes much quicker than the ones who are less empowered. Well, that's pretty cool. So suggesting that organizations empower their workers then? That could be a good idea, actually. But it contradicts the original hypothesis that if you're powerful, you're more prone to mistakes and ignore them. This study shows that by being more powerful, you're more attentive and make fewer mistakes. That doesn't surprise me. If I'm told to be subordinate and subjugate, I have nothing invested in the final product. I'm just doing it because I'm told to do it. Whereas if I am responsible for it, I feel like I need to do it, then I would say, yes, I need to make sure that this is actually a good product. But the conventional wisdom would hold that if you're in that position, you'd want to improve yourself and therefore you'd be invested to pay more attention and perform better. Yeah, the conventional wisdom also said that the world was flat. (laughs) And that the Earth was actually cooling down. Well, it's hard to close a book nowadays since they're all electronic. (laughs) The May issue of Psychological Science. Very cool. All right, well, those people who are empowered may all be telling the same number of lies. Nixon didn't lie then. Well, he may or may not have, but uh, one thing's for sure, we we cannot use fMRI to tell. So it's not a Turing test. (laughs) Isn't the Turing test to see if we are an intelligent being? Yeah, and isn't that because when you can't tell if the person's lying or not? The sign of intelligence is that you can lie, right? (laughs) I could program something to lie pretty easily. (laughs) 
Um, so yeah, what's up with the fMRI? For quite some time now, a number of scientists, researchers, and private enterprise people have been trying to use fMRI in legal cases as sort of a lie detector. Its acceptability in courts is certainly one of contention, and in a first decision of its kind, a federal magistrate judge has now ruled that fMRI cannot be permitted in the courtroom as a new type of lie detector. Has it been used as a lie detector in court? Uh, apparently people have tried, and it's gone to U.S. Magistrate Judge Tu Pham, and he released a stating that the technology is currently unreliable and has not been accepted by the scientific community so it at present does not reach the uh, level of acceptability to be used in a legal courtroom is it just because these magnets are not powerful enough or is it just that the technique's flawed in general there's no real measure of error rates or people are not really sure about its real world applicability as of yet most of the stuff has been done in lab settings so it's not really clear what sort of results you're getting from these fMRI scans and whether or not they mean anything it's an interesting ruling, going to have profound effects on future court cases like this. It certainly doesn't apply outside of this jurisdiction, but it would certainly affect other jurisdictions. So we'll have to see how this, this mm. evolves. Okay, interesting. I, I think you're lying. <laughs> I'm waiting for my chicken soup. <laughs> Maybe we should just use you as, as the ultimate lie detector. I'll sell myself out to the highest court. <laughs> wow. All right. Well, this is very fascinating work, and it was uh, reported in a recent edition of Science Now. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. This is the Grox Science Show. Coming up in just a few minutes, Matthew Syed will join us to discuss the science of high performance. So stay tuned. to the Grok's Science Show. Well, success is hard to come by, and indeed many of us may often wonder what is it that separates those who are truly successful from those that aren't? Is there a secret that Mozart and Tiger Woods know that we don't? Well, joins today to discuss this issue is Mr. Matthew Side. Mr. Side is a noted British journalist and broadcaster who was also rated for many years as England's number one table tennis player. He has penned the new book, Bounce, Mozart, Federer, Picasso, Beckham, and the Science of Success, and he joins us today to discuss this issue for a general audience. Mr. Side, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok's Science Show. Thanks for having me on. Well, certainly our pleasure, and I think it's really a very fascinating book, Bounce. As you talk about the science of success, which you yourself are perhaps very well familiar with, being at one point England's number one table tennis player. Yeah, I started at a young age at my local school, and as I progressed in table tennis, enjoyed it very much and, and practiced very hard, and after a number of years, I, I reached the top spot in the UK. It's quite a big sport over here, about 2.4 million regular players and lots of paid-up members. I know it's not quite as big on that side of the pond. And when I got to the top, I assumed that the reason was because of my talent, because I had special table tennis playing genes. 
And yet, when I looked around me, many of the other top players, a remarkable proportion actually, were from the same road as me, in the same town. And of course, that particular street hadn't been zapped with a genetic mutation that hadn't affected anybody else. And it alerted me to the science which tells us that success isn't really about talent, it's about transforming oneself through many years of practice. So rather than there being some sort of innate ability built in, rather it's more a function of how much one is educated in practices. Yeah, exactly. And because really over time, one's innate capabilities, what one is born with, becomes really rather irrelevant because practice is transformational. It doesn't just change the body. It also changes the anatomy of the brain. We, we develop new neural connections. The signals in the brain travel around faster. And the transformation of the brain is, is very well established. That is what practice can do. But wouldn't it be possible then for some people perhaps to be a little more facile in terms of how quickly they're able to transform those connections in the brain? Well, it's certainly possible in principle, but the evidence suggests that we learn at very similar rates. The difference between people of different ability levels isn't that they, some are faster and others slower. It just is that some have learned for longer or have used practice techniques which have been more effective. Uh, a lot of the studies that have dug down into the narrative histories of great performers have found that they've just practiced longer than others, but hour for hour they've learned at pretty much the same rate. Of course, you know, none of this explains why the sort of alpha performers like Mozart and Federer, why they are so, so good, but it does explain that the vast majority of us have the potential to become excellent in, in just about any field. I, I see. So it's really just a, a function of just putting in the hours. Exactly. And I mean, the, thing, the mistake I think a lot of us make is we look at a terrific tennis player or footballer and we just assume that their skills have sort of been arrived at in, in quite quick time. It never happens that way. And if, if we were to actually look at the inch by inch improvements over many, many years, it wouldn't seem quite so difficult to get there. It's, it's the duration rather than the slope of the uh, mountain that they've climbed. You mentioned, though, that there are methods for making uh, such practice more efficient. Yeah, I think the two key aspects there are, number one, you mustn't practice things that you can already do. If you practice within yourself, and again, the evidence here is compelling, you don't really improve that much. And that's why you have some people in certain jobs who have been on the job for eight, nine, ten years who haven't really seen a great deal of improvement at all. But if you try and practice things that you can't quite do, that's when the brain is put under strain. And it's when the body and brain is put under strain that the metabolic processes are activated, which lead to the transformation. So is there a path to excellence? Yeah, and I, and I think it varies from area to area. So, for example, in table tennis, the most effective regime is called multi-ball training, where you have lots of balls fired at you to hone reactions and to build speed. In football, there are different types. So cycling and all these different activities in medicine and music, there are different ways to get there, but all of them subscribe to the principle of extending limitations during practice. And I suppose the other key thing is that you get accurate feedback. You need to know where you're going wrong in order to adapt. So in that sense, it probably helps to have a good mentor, a trainer. Yeah. yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, a really good trainer or educationalist or instructor can be the difference between success and failure. Because if you're practicing in the wrong way, 
you can often ingrain the wrong habits. And one of the reasons the street that I lived on was so successful is that the nation's top coach lived there. Um, one of the reasons that Spartak Moscow in Russia's capital is such a successful tennis club is it has an outstanding coach. So getting effective training is also key. Again, this is sort of maybe arguing more just for experience. Is there no role then for uh, some sort of innate ability? The evidence suggests that innate ability is a very elusive thing. When you look at children and you try and predict in advance who's going to make it and who isn't, it's not an exact science at all. In fact, it's, it's no better than the random distribution. When you look at people who have got to the top, they seem to have practiced to a pretty similar level. They pr have tended to have practiced the same amount of time. And those who are less good have practiced less. I mean, I do suspect that there probably is a role for some more mystical quality to explain why Mozart was so good and Federer is, is such a genius. It, no one has yet deconstructed the explanation for genius, but what we can say is that excellence, something that many of us feel is outside our capabilities in so many different areas, is actually very accessible, putting in the necessary hours. So what changes that take place once one excels in a particular area? Well, I mean, I mentioned the change in the brain. So, for example, taxi drivers who have had more than 10 years on the job, their area of the brain governing spatial navigation is far bigger. Not something they were born with, but something that's come through practice. Mathematicians who can calculate at super fast pace utilize an area of the brain which governs autobiographical memory. This isn't something that the rest of us do when we're learning mathematics. It's something that you learn to use when you keep practicing calculating ability. So there are lots of different examples of the way that we adapt over time to ensure that we can solve the difficult tasks that we set ourselves. Hmm. It often seems as if when you're younger, you're a bit more facile in terms of learning new tasks. Is it uh, also that you can become much more uh, excellent at a particular area if uh, you start earlier? I think it's certainly true that, I mean, the plasticity of the brain, the adaptability of the brain, you know, survives past childhood. You can still adapt the brain into quite late life. I think the advantage of starting young in, in certain areas is that by the time you get to 18, if you've reached a certain level of proficiency in, for example, golf, you can become a prof Whereas if you start golf at the age of 25, you know, catching up is difficult because you need to earn a living. So it's difficult to clock up the number of hours. So starting early, I think just from a practical perspective, is, is important in, in many sports. So what about the psychology of, of elite performers? Uh, what is it about them that uh, allows them also to perform when it comes time to actually perform in competition? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. It's, um, it's a great irony that some individuals, they practice hard and develop excellence, but then when they have to translate that excellence into top performance under pressure, occasionally fall apart. And the terms like self-belief and so on are often used to describe those who are able to, to really do it under pressure. I mean, I did look at this in some detail in the book, particularly in the context of a phenomenon called choking. I think you use the same word maybe over, over the other side of the pond, mm -hmm. when people really dramatically fall apart. And it seems that, you know, when you really learn a skill, you encode it in the subconscious. And one of the problems when choking is you become so anxious that you try and consciously control you know, a very complex thing like kicking a football or striking a golf ball, and you disrupt the sort of smooth workings of the subconscious. Um, 
but that that can be dangerous. And I think what top performers have is is an ability not to allow the conscious mind to to muscle in on the act. You know, the night commercial says it; they just do it. <laughs> so really, not getting in one's way. Yeah, the, the conscious mind can only handle quite a small number of variables, and a lot of these very complex tasks have lots of variables not just perceptual variables, but movement variables. And if you try and consciously control them, you're, you're, apt, you're likely to fall apart. Uh, you talk in your book also about various rituals that a lot of performers have. Yeah, it's, um, it's amazing, really, how often performers wield certain types of ritual when they're going out to, onto the field of play, you know, whether it's wearing a particular kind of shirt or socks or you know, touching a certain part of their body just before they're about to perform. I think it is, is something that, can reduce, that, that to a lot of people reduces anxiety. But I think fundamentally what we do is we often see a correlation between some random thing like a shirt colour and we wrongly infer that it has some consequent performance. And in that particular chapter, I look at the sort of evolutionary dynamics of that and, and I, I just think that it's a, it's a relic of our evolutionary past. Is it maybe also just some way of uh, allowing the performer to relax and allow their subconscious yeah. to? Yeah. yeah, I think it can uh, confer a sort of a placebo effect in that way, and I think that's dead right. I think certain rituals can, might not have any tangible impact on performance if they were used by everyone, but to certain people in certain contexts, they have a calming influence. So there's some obvious shortcuts to uh, performance enhancements. You, you talk about performing enhancing drugs. Yeah, I mean, that, that's an area which is very controversial. And, you know, I examine this in, in some detail. It's really about the morality of it. Performance enhancing drugs are sort of two kinds, really. One, to build muscle bulk steroids, and the other to increase endurance or increase the number of red blood cells, you know, EPO or blood doping. And I just argue that if you take an enhancement that is unavailable to others, it's a form of cheating. But if everyone have, has access to a particular enhancement, then, we can, then all of them can benefit at the same time. That's not necessarily something which is good in sport. If everyone takes a drug and improves by 10%, the relative positions are the same afterwards as they were before. But if there was an enhancement that was available in life, something that engineered immunity to a disease or increased intelligence or extended lifespan, I think that's something we should probably um, embrace. How much of that do you think is really uh, dealt with in some sports? I mean, there are obviously a lot of scandals oftentimes. Yeah, there are a lot of scandals, and it's very difficult to police drug-taking. I, mean, I think any form of cheating is wrong. All, all I'm saying is that in terms of the legislation that governs enhancements that are used outside of sport, I think we're inclined to be rather too conservative. It's, it's only in sport, I think, that there's a good argument for banning unsafe performance enhancers. The last chapter in your book sums up a lot of this, and it's titled, Are, Are Blacks Superior Runners? Yeah, it's, it's often said, isn't it, that blacks are, are better runners, but, I mean, first of all, if you dig down into that assertion, for example, 5,000 metres and above, you know, most of Africa is underrepresented in distance running success, and it's quite an isolated pocket of runners in and around the Rift Valley in Kenya who are successful runners. So it's certainly wrong to say blacks in general are better runners because blacks as a racial group encompasses an infinity of variation uh, genetically and otherwise. Um, but even when you look at the DNA of these successful Kenyan runners, it's, it's difficult to see anything in their DNA that would explain their success. But 
whereas when you look at their histories, a lot of them ran 20, 30 kilometers to and from school every day at altitude. And so they built an aerobic capacity and were not necessarily born with it. So again, really just where they were. Culture and environment and opportunity. It seems like with this interaction of genes and environments, really one of environment and training, and this is kind of the main message here. Yeah, most of us. I mean, we normally think that you have to have a very, you know, there's only maybe 1% who have the DNA to get to the top. I think what I'm saying is that more like 80 or 90% of us have the genetic makeup to become excellent. Um, It's not as isolated as we previously think. And I think it's very destructive if we think that talent is absolutely important because any time we fail, we're likely to interpret that as meaning we have insufficient talent and we're likely to give up. Whereas if we think it hinges on effort and perseverance, we're going to keep going and we're we're going to get there. So what would you say then is advice for those people striving, I guess, to excel in some endeavor in life? It's, it's advice. It's a double-edged advice. One, if you, if you persevere, you're going to become very, very good. Two, to get there, it's going to take a lot of effort, and it's, it's going to be a tough road, but a, an, an inspiring road. Well, it is indeed a, a very useful method, message, and uh, again, the new book is called Bounce, Mozart, Federer, Picasso, Beckham, and the Science of Success. Mr. Syed, thank you very much for joining us on the Grok Science Show. Thanks so much for having me on. And you're just listening to Matthew Syed discussing the science of high performance. This is the Grok's Science Show. Coming up in just a few minutes is the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. Hey now, you're an all-star. Get your game on. It's time to play the game, the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, Who Would Win? So for the following five pairs of individuals, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if they were in a competition head-to-head, which one of them would win? Uh, Mr. Syed, are you ready to play the game? Ready. All right, here we go. Who would win? Competition number one, Mozart versus Lady Gaga. (laughs) (laughs) I'll go for Mozart on that one. Uh, a big admirer of Mozart and, and not quite as familiar with Lady Gaga. <laughs> okay. She might win the uh, dress competition, though. That's true. <laughs> All right. Competition number two, Tiger Woods versus Jack Nicholas. Oh, very interesting. I'd probably go with Woods, and that doesn't diminish my respect and admiration for Nicholas. 
Woods, probably at his best, was, was a finer golfer. All right. Competition number three, Jackson Pollock versus Pablo Picasso. Oh, I'd go for Picasso there. I mean, I'm a, an admirer of, of Pollock, but I think Picasso uh, was a creative genius, almost unheralded in, in the last hundred years of art. Uh, number four, David Beckham versus Pele. Pele, much better. Beckham's a brilliant footballer, but Pele, probably one of the greatest two players in the history of the sport, an icon in, in Brazil, and a World Cup winner. Indeed, indeed. All right, and finally, number five, who would win the following competition? It's uh, your new Prime Minister, David Cameron, versus Winston Churchill. <laughs> Both conservative Prime Ministers, but there's no comparison between the two. Churchill was a, a war leader in possibly the greatest of all British Prime Ministers. Cameron, currently untested, he's only been in the job for him, so, um, but I suspect he won't quite measure up to the great Winston. <laughs> All right, well, well, Mr. Said, I want to thank you very much for sticking around, playing our game, and again, of course, talking about your new book, Bounce, Mozart, Federer, Picasso, Beckham, and the Science of Success. Thanks so much for having me on. All right, and now it's time for this week's question of the weekend. Coming to us straight from Dagobah, it's our good friend, Jedi Master Yoda. Yoda, how are you doing? <laughs> Alive and powerful, the Force is with me. Mm. And you, Mr. Charles. That it is, Yoda, that it is. And, you know, we're certainly glad to have the all-powerful Jedi Master Yoda, especially to answer a very pressing question. What is the Turing Test? <laughs> Complicated, your question is. But life people are fine. Hmm. Take the test, you will. Intelligence, you'll find. Hmm. And the test that will prove you are <clears throat> human. Hmm. Almost human, I am too. Hmm. All right, Yoda. Well, thanks a lot, and may the force be with you. <clears throat> and always with you too. And that's all for this week's edition of the Rock Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Grok Science, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. We're also on Facebook. Have a great day and keep on grokking.